Thank you. Um, you kind of know you haven't been around for a little while when come, somebody calls you a guest speaker. <laughs> it does feel like it's been a little while. It's lovely to be here. It's good to see everyone. Um, I've got a question for you. Have you ever had to try to convince somebody of something, particularly somebody you didn't really want to be convinced of the thing that you were trying to convince them of? Have you ever had to do that? Is it easy? Have you ever had to try to convince your teenage son that maybe there's something to work on in his driving skills? It's tricky. Have you ever had to try to maybe like convince a a six-year-old girl that although her fairy princess outfit is awesome, that maybe she shouldn't wear it to school today? Maybe you've had to convince your husband or your boyfriend or could be your girlfriend, could be your wife, that they only need one surfboard. Which is silly, right? Of course they need more than one surfboard. Um, I remember uh, my mum trying to convince me of something when I was seven years old. And she was trying to convince me of something that had to do with, if this works, does that work? Lamb tongues. Lamb tongues. We were away uh, on holidays. We were in the in the caravan, and I was little, and I was starving, and I'm rummaging through the pantry in the caravan, and I came across this strange tin of awesomeness that I'd never seen before, and I thought that's got to be good. Lamb tongues. I love lamb. I've got no idea what a tongue is. Mum, what are lamb tongues? And I reckon she must have had a little bit of a giggle, but and, and she's gone, they're, they're tongues, they're lamb's tongues. <laughs> lamb's tongues. It's not even how you spell it. <laughs> and as and as if anybody is going to put like lamb's tongues in a in a tin, that's a ridiculous idea. Lamb tong lamb tongues. These are gonna be unreal. So I said, like, Mum, um, can I have one? Can I have the, can I have the lamb tongues? Now, now, my mum did not have a reputation of being an untrustworthy lady. Um, she had told me pretty clearly what was on the tin, but I would not be convinced, and so she gave me the lamb tongues, and then the revelation came. Who the heck ever thought that that was a good idea? (laughs) And why were they in our caravan? (laughs) Uh, It's the only time I've ever tasted something that was tasting me back. (laughs) Liam Tong used. Convincing people of something, it it is hard at the best of times, but it is doubly hard when their mind is already made up on some other other idea. And then it's even more difficult again when you're trying to convince them of something that's outside of their experience, that's outside of their understanding. And when this is the case, we just end up having to rely on some kind of revelation, some kind of encounter uh, with, with reality. And hopefully that encounter has nothing to do with lamb's tongues, let me tell you. Today's passage in John 16, it follows on, like you would know that Jesus has been trying 
to, uh, to explain to the disciples that he's going away, that he's not going to be with them for much longer. He, he's been letting them know that they're going to be persecuted, that they're going to be under pressure on account of him, but that he would send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to take up residence within them and they ought not be troubled. They ought not be afraid. And in fact, they should be rejoicing that this is going to happen. And so no doubt their, their heads are spinning at this time. And so we pick up this scene halfway through verse 4. And so it's John 16, halfway through verse 4, reading from the NRSV. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you'll see me no longer, about judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We're just going to focus on, on this bit. So verses 8, 8 to 11. It is a tricky little passage. When he comes, when, when the advocate comes, the helper, the alongsider, the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Your, your Bible might say he will convict the world. Elenko is, is the word here, and it means to, to expose. It means to convict. It means to convince to tell a fault, to reveal a truth or an error. So when he comes, he will convince the world that they've made a mistake. He'll reveal to the world a greater reality so that, so that the world might change its mind. The message says when he comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin and righteousness and judgment. The world's got it wrong, it seems, on how it understands these things. Now, if you watched Andrew's message from last week, you'll know that, that the world that Jesus is referring to here is the immediate world. It, it is the world of Jesus and his disciples. It is the world of Judaism. It's their prevailing religion and culture and ethics. And specifically... Uh, it's the religious leaders of that world who have rejected Jesus. Jesus said back in, in chapter 15, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. 
Of course, we've come to see this in much, much bigger, much more kind of global and expansive terms since. But right at this moment, it's the world of the religious elite. It is the religious institution that Jesus is referring to here. Those who ought to know better have gotten something wrong. And it's the Holy Spirit who will come and will convince them of this error. This is the job of the Holy Spirit, to reveal truth, to to convince, to bring about a change of mind, repentance. And so we've got to say from the outset that that's not our job. And that was not the job of the disciples. It's not our responsibility to, to convince or to convict anyone of anything, especially when it comes to things of God. We bear witness, we testify, and we demonstrate the love of God toward one another. But it is the role of the Holy Spirit to bring revelation, to bring repentance, to expose truth, and then to guide us in its path. When he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. We're going to look at each of these. He will prove the world wrong about sin because they do not believe in me. We can click that. There we go. The message says, he'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin. The world's got it wrong. Somewhere along the line, the, 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 the Jewish faith tradition has, has gone off course somewhere. In that tradition, uh, violation of any one of the the 613 rules and requirements of of the law, that's that's sin. If you violate the law, sin, it seems, is in relation to the the Jewish law. To sin, chata, it is to go astray. It's to miss the mark. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that we can do that, that we can go off course. And we've, we've had a go at all of them, I think. In any sense, to sin is to stray from the path of righteousness as it is stipulated by the law. Judaism teaches that that to sin is actually a part of life because there is no perfect human. Some sins are going to be judged by, by the courts and others would be judged and would be punished by heaven. We've got to remember that in Judaism, the the law that we read in the Old Testament, it constituted civil and criminal law, not just the religious standard to be administered by God. And so sins against people would be dealt with by the courts and there would be any manner of penalties and there would be sentences and restitutions delivered by the court. And then sins between man and God would be dealt with through, through ritual, through sacrifice, through, through atonement. To sin against God is, is a violation of covenant. It is a breaking of the contract between God and his people, the Israelites. And even though this is serious, the, in the face of these violations throughout all of the Old Testament, our God is seen as being both just and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in kindness. 
those who would be completely righteous, those who, who did nothing uh, wrong according to the law in this life, and of course, of course that was nobody, um, they, they would enjoy right relationship. They would enjoy right relationship with God now in this life and right relationship with God in the life after, in the age to come. Those who were not completely righteous or completely wicked, they would suffer in this world to atone for their sins and they would do that through, through humiliation and through misfortune and poverty and, and sickness that God would send them. And if their repentance is not complete in this world, then their suffering would, would continue after death in the Gehinnom. And once their repentance is complete, or if it is complete, then they would join the righteous in the age to come. But for those who are completely wicked, those who do not repent, even in the Gehenna, even at the gates of hell, as it were, they would be left to their rebellion and they would not join the righteousness, the righteous. But in Christ, however, for the first and the last and the only time, the law would be completely fulfilled. The, the contract between God and creation, God and, and humanity would be fully satisfied. And we read in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus, Jesus saying, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What was impossible for humanity to achieve under the law has been perfectly accomplished in Christ. Paul writes this in, in Romans 8. He says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice. And sometimes we reduce Jesus' sacrifice to the cross, but the entire incarnation, his sacrifice. By giving his son as sacrifice for our sins, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied us. These 613 laws, they now have no bearing on our standing with God. No more sacrifice, no more atonement required for our sins. He has done it all. Our participation then in, in the fulfilment of this law, it requires that we lean on fully, that we believe in Christ's sinlessness, that we that we that we give ourselves over to his perfect sacrifice rather than trusting in our own ability to lead a, a sinless life. And what that means is that only one sin remains. Because of what Christ has done, because of the, the universal, the comprehensive nature of his work, there is now only one violation between the covenant of God and man. Plenty of violations between people. They all need to be dealt with in appropriate ways. But there, there is only one way to stray from the path of righteousness, and that is to reject God's Son. 
And so John writes, there, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him is all, has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. This is the only sin, folks, to not believe in God's one and only son. Now, of, of course, you have to have knowledge of, of Jesus in order to reject him. And John, John writes this, or Jesus says this in John 15. He, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders here, those who, who were meant to know the truth. And he said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, then they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. They got it wrong. They were confronted with the truth about Jesus and they rejected it. They have no excuse for their sin. Sin is no longer about the law. Sin is about what you do or do not do with God's Son. And so let's get clear. This passage in John 16, is, it is not saying that when the Holy Spirit comes that he will convict everyone of all the bad things they've done. What the Holy Spirit comes to convince us of is Christ. Dealing with behavioural sin in our own strength, in our own willpower, is not the path to salvation. The path to salvation is Jesus. And this is what the advocate comes to prove. So because of this, because of Jesus' total fulfilment of the law, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world wrong about righteousness. Righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you'll see me no longer. When the helper comes, he will expose the error. He will correct the the Jewish religious thinking about righteousness. Righteousness, dikaiusenai. It could have also been translated as justice. It's a helpful thing for us to keep in mind because sometimes our our thoughts about righteousness, when we think about that word, sometimes we can just reduce it to some kind of like individual moral ideal. Justice and righteousness is a paired idea that runs all the way through the Old Testament and into the New And remember here, Jesus is speaking to the disciples about exposing the error in in Jewish religious thinking, in Old Old Testament thinking, and what it has become. Justice and righteousness, they do indeed uh, represent uh, an ethical and and moral purity. This is an attribute of God. God is righteous. He is holy. But at their very, very core... Justice and righteousness are relational ideas. They're relational concepts. To be righteous is to be in right relationship with God. You could call this salvation. Righteousness is being in right relationship with God. To do justice is to restore right relationship with God, to restore right relationship between God and people and things. That's the work of justice, to restore right 
relationships. And so if I am in perfect relationship with God, I am righteous. If I work to restore right relationship with God, people and things, I'm doing the work of justice. And the New Testament calls this reconciliation. To be unrighteous is to be out of relationship. It is to be separate. It is to be disintegrated from God and from his order of things. And likewise, injustice is to damage those relationships. It is to go his connected order of oneness. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea of righteousness. Righteousness is connected to the presence of God, to the proximity of God. And it's the presence of God that we see sets the the Israelite people, sets the Israelite nation apart from all other nations, from all other people groups. It is the presence of God. And then from Exodus and Leviticus onwards, we see that righteousness um, is understood as adherence to the law, not violating those 613 rules, which of course they did. And so this is why the people needed to to purify themselves of all unrighteousness. And we do that through sacrifice and ritual and religion and atonement so that the presence of God would not depart from the Israelites, would not depart from the temple. The interesting thing is, though, is that the first person to be declared righteous was Abram right back in Genesis 15. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteousness because of his faith, because of his belief. And the Lord was present, he was proximate with, with Abram. He spoke to Abram in dreams and in, and in visions and then he even visited him under the tree of Mamre in, in Genesis 18. Then there's Moses and Moses is, is, is this hero of righteousness and this is evidenced by, by his being allowed to be in the immediate presence of God. We see in Exodus 33 that inside the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face like one would speak to a friend. The Jews also considered David as righteous because of his relationship with God. He was a man after God's own heart. And we know that none of these men were perfect according to the law. But they found right relationship. The Lord didn't even exist when Abram was counted as righteous. The the evidence and the the, the path, the stuff of righteousness is relationship. It is the presence and the proximity, intimacy, belief, faithfulness with God. And so Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will prove to the religious elite they got it wrong about righteousness because they reduced it to Psalm clinical, forensic adherence to the law and ignored relationship with God. And so while they they are going to try and they're going to execute Jesus for blasphemy, for insurrection against the temple, his righteousness will be proven by going to the Father in direct and intimate and proximate relationship, perfectly righteous, He is the righteous one. 
because he is with the Father. Perfect oneness with the Father. The world got it wrong. This is the truth about righteousness. Jesus is with the Father. And so as far as the, the disciples and as far as you and I are concerned even, it's through Jesus' ascension that we too are righteous. That we too come into right and proximate and intimate relationship with God. So you've got to remember over, over the last few weeks as we've been looking through John 13, 14 and 15, Jesus has been banging on about this enormous idea that he's in us and that we're in him. And what this means is that when Jesus went to be with the Father, we went with him. Paul gets this in, in Colossians 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And then in Ephesians 2, he says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I can't get my head around it. Jesus is the truly righteous one. He is perfect, holy, blameless. And the evidence of this is his union with the Father. And you and me, so it seems, have been raised with him and are seated with him. So just like Abram and Moses and, and David, righteousness has been credited to you, credited to me by virtue of our belief in Christ, God the Son. This is the only way to righteousness. The law and behaviour and religion will not get us there. Never did. Don't think that righteousness about it is about adherence to the law, about behaviour. That's where the religious leaders got it wrong. It's about right relationship with the Father already prepared and secured for you in Christ. In him, we have become the righteousness of God. And you remember Abraham, Paul, Paul writes this in, in Romans. And so, so Abraham, I can't see if that's the right one or not. Abraham is Abram after the aha, right? So because of Abraham's faith, because of his belief, it's the same word. God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too. Assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. When he comes, the Holy Spirit will prove the world wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. About judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. So what the Jewish religious world thought about judgment is wrong. So in other words, what they believed who would ultimately be found guilty, who would ultimately be found innocent and condemned, was off base. 
because it's the ruler of this world that's been condemned. Their judgment was to condemn Jesus. That was their judgment. That Jesus was the guilty one. He was the one worthy of execution, of condemnation. But they got it wrong. And what the Holy Spirit will reveal, what he will testify to, what he will prove, is that it's the ruler of this world who has been judged and condemned. So who is this ruler? Jesus has already referred to him a couple of times. Before celebrating the Passover in in John 12, um, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler or the prince of this world be cast out. Jesus is talking about the imminent judgment of the world, not some end time thing. The imminent condemnation of this ruler, he will be cast out. And then at the, at the end of the Last Supper in John 14, Jesus says, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. Here he comes. He's nearly here. Earlier in John, Jesus actually names the devil, Diabolos. And here he's speaking to the religious leaders and he's not pulling any punches. And Jesus said, says to them, If God were your father, you you would love me, for I came from God. And I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He's the devil, the diabolos, the accuser, the slanderer, the liar. Diabolos means to pull apart, to separate. And so the devil, the father of lies, he is at work within the religious leaders, within the the religious institution of the Jewish world. He is the ruler of this world and here he comes. And his children are going to do their father's murderous bidding, all the while convinced that they're doing the work of God. In condemning the ruler of this world, however, Jesus makes a different judgment. He knows that that the root of sinfulness lies not in the sinner, but in the father of sin, in the devil. And that's what needs to be dealt with. John writes, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The source of sin is not you. It's the devil. Paul gets this in when he writes in Romans 7, it is no longer I who sin, but it is sin that dwells within me. The father of sin, the ruler of this world, has made us slaves to sin. And Christ has come to destroy his work, to set the captives free. And this is how we will do it. The devil is condemned. He he is defeated. He is dethroned. And then in three days' time, Jesus will prove this judgment by rising from the dead. The overcoming of death itself. Death, the consequence of sin. 
in condemning the ruler of this world by casting him down, by destroying his works, the power of both sin and death is defeated. Amen? So religious leaders, you were wrong. You're wrong about sin. You're wrong about judgment. You're wrong about righteousness. And even, even though you were the ones who claimed to know God, you got it wrong about all these things because you were banking on the law. You were banking on your religion to save you, and you were wrong. You missed it. Because all the law does, all your ritual does, all your religion does, all the scripture does is point to Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit does too. Jesus said back in, in John 15, he said, I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and he will testify all about me. And you must testify about me. You must also testify about me because you have been, been with me from the beginning of my ministry. So disciples... In the power of the Holy Spirit who will be in you, you are to testify about Jesus. Testify that in Jesus alone, sin is dealt with. Testify that in Jesus alone, your righteousness, my righteousness, it is already secure and that our destiny, our destiny is in right relationship with the Father in the Son. You are to testify that in him, Sin and death and darkness is finished. The devil and his works are condemned. They are dethroned. They are destroyed. It's good news. It's a tricky passage. And it's not about the Holy Spirit condemning us all of our sinfulness. It is a commissioning of the disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit to testify. They're to testify. They're not the defendants. They're not the prosecutors. They're not the judges. But witnesses. And you and I are the same. As disciples of Jesus, it is not up to you, it is not up to me to convince or to convict anybody of anything. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We are witnesses. And we testify that in Christ alone, sin is dealt with, that your eternity and right relationship with God is secure, and that death is defeated. The devil is condemned. And so the only question that remains is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Or will you resist the truth right up until the can is opened? Let me pray. Oh, you did it out all, Lord. All of it. The enemy is defeated. Praise God. Sin, death, dealt with. And we fall at your feet, Lord Jesus. We say thank you. We ask for your mercy and we declare to you that we, we are not worthy and we know it. No righteousness within us. We're confronted with that real reality every day. Father, you are so rich in love and mercy that in, in your own self, in your son, you took it all, you wore it all, defeated the enemy. 
It's finished. It's done. By your spirit, would you reveal to us, would you reveal in us in new ways every day, the truth of it all, would you testify to our spirit, testify in our hearts the truth of it. Sin is dealt with, it's done. Death is overcome. overcome. And you have called us into your presence. Perfect, right, everlasting relationship with you. God too, might you send us with your spirit in us to do the work of justice, to do the work of reconciliation, that we would be repairers of right relationship in this place, knowing that we don't have to convince anybody of anything. We just testify. Dare not do that without you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.